Amen, amen. Well, good morning, family. How's everybody doing? I am super excited to uh, welcome you guys back, and we are officially now in chapter two of Titus. Um, And so with that being said, we're going to be going through verses one through 10. If you're watching online, welcome to Verse by Verse Fellowship. We're so excited you're here. Uh, Pastor Mike will be back in the pulpit next week to continue on through the book of Philippians. So be prepared and ready for that. Uh, So I want to kind of give a summary, some brief cliff notes as to what we've gone through in our Titus study thus far and where we are this morning. So currently we've witnessed that Paul's urgent message to Titus is really quite simple, uh, and that is to set in order what remained, to set in order what remained. And the reason for needing to set things in order is because many of these home churches during this particular time were experiencing false teachers creeping up into the churches. And so something had to be done about that. And so Paul tells Titus, you need to set elders in these places. And so we then discover that Titus is not to just select just any random group of men for this leadership position. He's to specifically pick men of character, men of biblical character and soundness in the faith. And then what Paul is going to do is he's going to start contrasting these men of character and men of faith with these false teachers because Paul wants to make something extremely clear. This is what leadership should look like. This is how leadership should act. And this is what leadership should not look like. And this is what leadership should not be acting like. And he'll kind of summarize that point in verse 15 of Titus chapter 1 where he says this statement, to the pure, all things are pure. After he moves through that, he'll then move to verse 16. It's kind of the ending statement at the end where he says uh, regarding false teachers that although they have this knowledge of God, although they have this intellectual capacity to know who he is, their lives and their actions have nothing to show for it. That although they can talk a good talk, they can't walk the walk. The reason why they can't is because they don't have the spirit of God in them. If I were to kind of put a single thread throughout the entire book of Titus, it would simply be this, that this book hinges on the fact that the gospel leads to right living. The gospel leads to right living. And it will be in chapter two that Titus will see how this transformative life by the spirit of God is to be applied, how it is to be lived, and how it is to be practiced out within the body as a whole. If I were to teach from a sermon topic this morning, it would simply be this, how we must live. If we put an asterisk next to that, it would say cross-generational discipleship. Again, hopefully you're there now. If you need a Bible, the ushers will be able to pass those to you. Again, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and this is what Paul writes to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, 
so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verse six, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse nine, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our savior in every respect. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to come to a knowledge of who you are. And Lord, in coming to a knowledge of who you are, it changes our lives. That we cannot encounter the gospel and not be changed. God, I now pray that the prayers of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Help us, Lord, in this moment to be effectual doers of your word and not simply hearers that delude themselves. For it is in the doing, it is in the doing, it is in the doing of the word that we are blessed. Strengthen us now by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There was a young man that was gonna be sentenced to the penitentiary and uh, this judge knew this young man because he also knew the young man's family. And as this judge Knows, notices this young boy, he, he also knows that his father is a very famous legal scholar and an author of this exhaustive study entitled The Law of Trust. And so the judge asked the boy, he says, son, he said, do you remember your father? And the young boy said, I remember him very well, your majesty. Then the judge trying to probe out of this young boy and really veer into his conscience, he asks a question. He says, as you are about to be sentenced and you think about your wonderful dad, what do you remember most clearly about him? There was a pause in the courtroom. The young boy said, I remember when I went to him for advice. He looked up to me and from his book as he was writing and he said, run along, boy, I'm busy. When I went to him for companionship, he turned me away saying, run along, boy, this book isn't finished yet. Your honor, you remember a great lawyer. I remember a lost friend. And the magistrate muttered to himself and he said, alas, he finished the book, but lost the boy. And the most lasting impact that one can have on the next generation of believers and the world around them is based upon how and with whom an individual's time was spent. Not only is God's design for discipleship essential to the flourishing of the family, but it is also essential to that of the flourishing of the church. Spiritually mature men and women deeply committed to life on life with new and young believers helps to transform generations to the glory of God. And these will be generations that have lived well because they know well. And they know well because they have been taught well. And my question for us this morning from the text is who is discipling you and who have you discipled? 
whose lives have been able to look at you and observe what you've done. And in return, they now are living in such a way that is able to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, deep commitment within a gospel community cultivates correct living in Christ. And our lives are not changed because we changed our behaviors, but rather God has changed our hearts by his spirit in light of the scriptures. And because God has changed our hearts, it is by his grace that we are able to live a life that is worthy and reflective in the life that has paid it all. And that is Jesus himself. And in understanding that, friends, and the truth of this text, we're going to jump into chapter two, where Paul is going to show young Titus how he is to teach this church and these churches how to live. Verse one of chapter two, here's what he says. But as for you, proclaim the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And I think you can see right here off of the jump of the text, it starts with the word but. But this word can also be interchanged with therefore. And as a good Bible student, when you ask these questions, the question that pops up is what is therefore therefore? So you typically want to go back to the previous verse to understand what is being discussed that has Paul make this very resounding statement directly to Titus. And here is what verse 16 of Titus chapter one says. They profess to know God, but their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There it is that these false teachers have an understanding of God but their hearts are not of God. And therefore their lives are not able to exhibit spiritual transformation. The text reveals that we can know God on an intellectual level, but yet not be impacted by his word to see true spiritual change. True transformation friends comes through being an effectual doer of the word of God is in doing what you know and what you trust and what you believe from this text that leads us to living well. If you don't believe me, James chapter one, verse 22 through 24 says it this way, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And Paul brings his attention to Titus here in verse one. And I can imagine if Paul could reach through this letter to young Titus, he'd grab him by his shoulders and he would say, listen, Titus, you know, these false teachers, you know, these men are wicked. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They're incapable of being able to believe because they don't know the Lord. He tells Titus in a few words, Titus, you must live what you preach. Don't just talk about it, be about it. And I love the New Living Translation of how they translate verse one of Titus chapter two. This is what they say. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Paul emphasizes to Titus, practice and live out what you preach. And with this in mind, as we move into verses two through six, Paul will explain from a practical perspective what sound doctrine looks like in action in the body of Christ. 
Here is how Paul will break down these ways in which these particular groups in the church are to be addressed. First verse one, Paul is going to talk to Titus directly, and then he's going to give him the instructions on what to do regarding these particular groups. Verse two, he's going to directly talk to the older men, what they must do, how they must live, how they must act. Then verses three through five, the older women. And in verses four through five, he will address the younger women in relation to the older women. Then from there in verse six, he'll talk to the younger men. And directly after he talks to the younger men, he'll go right back to Titus, who himself being a younger man. And then from there, verses nine through 10, he will talk directly to slaves in that time. So pick me up at verse two of Titus chapter two. Here he says, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Notice that Titus is told that these groups should be taught sound doctrine. And notice he's not teaching them behavior. Titus is teaching them the word. And this will be important as we move further along in the text. And I'll bring it back to you. Put a pin there. Paul first is going to address the older men in the church. From the outside looking in, if you read verse two, it would look to us as though these older men got it all together. They got their stuff. They know what they are to do. They would be what I would call the untouchables. But Paul mentions this phrase, they are to be. Do you see that in the text? They are to be. And this presumes that, this presumes that the older men in Crete in some way, shape, or form, lacked spiritual maturity in some areas of their lives. We have to keep in mind that some of these new believers coming into a relationship with Jesus still had some old tendencies, some old habits that hadn't been let go of. And so what has to be known is, as you continue to pursue the text, there should be some things in your life that should die off that don't reflect the very person and image of Jesus Christ. The text makes one thing evidently clear, and friends, I hope you see it too, that we cannot assume that just because someone is older in age, that they are spiritually mature. What marks the spiritually mature, the spiritual maturity rather, of an older person is the truth that has been applied in their lives over the course of their life. Titus is to teach these older men, even in their seasoned age, how to live well. And Paul states that these older men are to be three things, a few things, actually. He says temperate, temperate, meaning that these older Cretan men should be restrained from drinking, not to overindulge to the point of drunkenness. And this, friends, was typical of Cretan men during this time. They should be dignified. These older believers were to be revered, to be able to be worthy of looking up to within society. That I can point to this person and say, yeah, that person right there, that's a great guy. That's that's a godly man right there. Sensible that these men were to be spiritually healthy, that they were able to discern well and reason well. This, this word sensible means that, that there is spiritual reasoning, that they are able to go to the text and in their decision making, they are able to weed out what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And what is the filter by which those things fall through? It's the text. 
put it plainly, these older men in the church should be healthy in their trust of the gospel, their love towards other and others, and their steadfastness. He mentions this last part where they should be sound in faith and love and in perseverance. Now, there's something key that I want us to hone into. It's that last word where it says sound in perseverance. Do you see that in the text? That word perseverance in the Greek is hypomone. Hypomone. This word is patient endurance or steadfastness. Uh, Imagine if you were in a battle waging war against another person and you draw your sword and they draw their sword and they come to attack you and your sword hits theirs. Your sword doesn't break and you wage again and your sword doesn't break. It's this idea that there's this constant battling, this constant pressing of life that is coming upon you, but yet there is no breaking. That, friends, is hypomone. It is the steadfast endurance that you are able to sustain the blow of life. Why? Because your endurance doesn't come from yourself. Your endurance comes through you trusting in the word of God. Their lives These older men have taken hits in life, but they've always come back to the gospel. Let's look at verses three through five. It says this older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young woman, young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Clearly from the text, we see that Paul's expectation on the woman in the church and the women in the church collectively requires the same maturity level of that of the older men. Paul uses this word again, likewise. And when he uses this word likewise, it's regarding this fact that the behavior of the older women are not to be divorced from the behavior of the younger men. That we hold this expectation of spiritual maturity from both the older men and the older women to teach well and to live well. Spiritual maturity does not have an age attachment to it as if to say you have to be this age in order to be considered spiritually mature. This maturity comes through the application of the word of God that is living and that is living out the word of God daily and submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul then will contrast the older spiritually mature women with those in whom are not spiritually mature. He said, don't be gossips. Don't be drunkards. And it can be assumed from the text, once again, that these older women in Cretan culture fell victim to this more than once. It was a habit for them to be gossipy. It was a habit for them to be drunk. As a matter of fact, one scholar records that in early comedies in the first century, many women were displayed as gossips and involved in foolish talk. And with that reality being known, Paul informs Titus to teach these older believers to endure in the truth that they know and not in the culture that they see. If I were to pause here for a moment, I want us to recognize that this reality is not divorced from our cultural dynamics today. 
As believers in Christ, we too must warrant against the temptation to acquiesce to the culture that the gospel must transform our hearts. And it is through living out the scriptures by the power of the spirit of God through the application of the text that the growth in our lives continues to occur. And as Paul continues in addressing older women, I want you to notice something that there's a shift, not in responsibility, but in accountability. This does not mean that younger women are not to sit under the teachings of the pastor. This simply means that the opportunity to be taught on a more one-to-one level or a discipleship aspect is to be accomplished by the older women in the church. Verse three through four says, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Notice that Paul does something extremely interesting here, that he moves from this public edification from the pulpit from Titus to this private edification and training regarding discipleship for older women to younger women. There's this old African proverb that says, the youth can walk faster, but the elder knows the road. Young people have a tendency to assume that they know everything. And when it comes down to discipleship, it requires that they be teachable. I must be teachable. Young people, you and I together collectively, we must be teachable. And I believe it's important to highlight how Paul organizes this section regarding this relationship. And here, what I want to do really quickly is I want to look at the responsibilities that the text gives to the younger woman. Love their husbands, love their children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And within the Judaism and Greco-Roman culture, it was easy to know that a woman's virtue came in how she took care of her home, how she loved her husband, how she loved her children, how she raised them. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 26 through 29 says this, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Please hear me when I say this, that these attributes for young women are not antiquated. They're they're not outdated. It looks different, but it's not outdated. The reason why I bring this up is because it's documented by scholars that there was this idea that was beginning to creep into the culture. It was called a new Roman woman. The characteristics of these women were dynamically opposed to what a Christian woman should be. And if I were to put it in today's context, it would look like what feminism looks like today. The thoughts were something like this. If the men can sleep around, surely we can too. If the men can do this, then surely we can do this too. Philip Towner in his book, The Letter of Timothy and Titus, documents this regarding the new woman, and I quote, 
The values of the new woman, style of conduct and creed had little to do with traditional commitments to the household. The new morality they emphasized endorsed the freedom to pursue extramarital sexual liaisons and liberties normally open to only men of that time, which would be placed marital uh, fidelity and household management at risk. Thus, the household was the chief theater of Paul's campaign. I want to put up a chart here real fast. On the left side, this is the Christian woman. She loves her husband. What was the new Roman woman? Only if he loves me first. Good Christian woman, let love their children. The new Roman woman ideal, I have ambitions too. I don't want to be left alone with kids. Three, be self-controlled. And Beyonce really helped out with this one. All my independent women, throw your hands up at me. Pure. Well, I have sexual needs too. Five, working at home. Oh, it's more of a chore. I don't want to do that. Be kind. Roman woman was, oh, I'm going to be nice. And the difference between being kind and nice, if I were to give an example, is this. It's raining outside and uh, you tell somebody, hey, it's raining outside. That's nice to inform them. Being kind is knowing that it's raining outside and opening up your umbrella and walking them with you. That's kind. And then submissive. I'll submit to who satisfies me most or who submits to me first. And I know that for many people who've been taught about submission in many places, it's been abused and misused. If I were to point out an illustration, all submission is, is if you were to break down that word submission, being under the mission of the head of the home. If this is a biblical man who's leading his home well, the woman can easily submit herself under his leadership, follow what he is asking to do, even when he's being a knucklehead, <laughs> making the wrong decisions. Bae, you shouldn't have done that with our money. All right, bae. And what a submissive wife will do is rather than engaging in an argumentative debate, I'll say, okay, baby, you're right. Okay. And she'll go to her prayer closet and she'll get on her knees and she'll pray. And she'll seek the Lord. Lord, I need you to get a hold of his heart. Why? Because the reality is if I get a hold of his heart by the spirit of God, then the Lord is going to do the work. You see, it takes a solid, biblical, mature woman to pull aside the younger women who may be four, seven, or eight years in their marriage. And when you get some good marriage folks who've been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you got some wisdom there, especially if they've been in undersound teaching that you can pull them aside and say, hey, let me talk to you about this. Hey, let me tell you my experience with this. I'm not telling you just because it's what I've gone through, but I've, I've tried it through the text. I've seen how the Lord has worked through it through the text. That is what Paul is letting Titus know. Titus, this, this type of information you can't share with the younger women. They're going to need a good older woman who can come alongside them, love on them, teach them, and do life deeply with them so that their lives can be transformed. Paul moves on to verse six, says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Now, before you ladies get upset, it's like, they only get one? 
I want you to notice there's this word likewise again. So everything that the older man has to do, the younger man is also required to do as well. That likewise is connecting the dot there. Surely Paul is not stating that younger men are simply to be sensible alone. We get it. That the younger man should be temperate as well, dignified as well, sensible as well, sound in faith and love and in perseverance as well. Now, a good question that you might ask is what is the typical age range of a young man or a young woman, right? Uh, clearly within the text, we, we don't see that there's any youth ministry, right, in the first century, right? We don't, we don't see any children's ministry that's happening in the text. These expectations on right living were to be applied not only for the older men and women, but those older men and women, especially the mothers in the home, were to teach their children how to be diligent, how to be dignified, how to be loving, how to endure in the faith. That was the responsibility of mom in the home. That was the responsibility of dad in the home to overlook and make sure that this is the the, the main thing, and that if anything else falls from under this, then we need to get back in order. We see that cross-generational discipleship is necessary to develop and cultivate the heart and the life of a believer in Christ. My wife and I and our, our lives were dynamically impacted by our small group leaders at a previous church, Manny and Joanne. And my wife and I, in, in our small group time, one of the things that we were really trying to do was we wanted to get debt free because we knew that the Lord was calling us into ministry. We just didn't know what it was going to look like. But we knew if we want to do ministry well, we want to be debt free. Again, we never shared this with our small group leaders. We never shared this with anybody else. One day in our small group, Manny and Joanne pulled us aside and, and they said, hey, Wes, Mercedes, God has a calling on y'all's life. I know that God wants you guys to do something in ministry. I just don't know what it's going to look like. But in order for you to do it, you have to be debt free. And I'm like, well, y'all in our prayer meeting at home? (laughs) And they said, we want to do something for you guys. We want to open up our home. Come live with us. Manny, Joanne, we got two kids, five and four. Come live with us. We have a bedroom downstairs. It's a study. We'll convert it into a bedroom. We don't have an extra bedroom down there, so we're going to create a makeshift bedroom in the living room for the kids. And for the next 10 months, eight people in one house. For the next 10 months, my wife and I get to observe how our small group leaders dealt with each other, loved each other. We sat at their dining room table and ate together. They said, listen, don't worry about buying any food. Don't worry about doing anything else. Pay your normal bills that you need. We'll take care of everything else. But we can, we got it. Okay. So I get to see my, my friend Manny asked his wife questions at the dinner table. I get to see my friend Manny talk to his children about school. Then one day, Manny comes to us. He says, listen, hey, I just want to let you know, there are going to be some moments where you're going to see some heated fellowship between me and my wife. 
He says, but I want you to use this as a teaching tool so that you know how to have heated fellowship well with your wife. And so I get to witness when they get into arguments or heated discussions, how to handle that as a husband. I get to see from his life how to manage the, 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 the craziness of teenage life and children, how to manage that well. There's another instance where Manny pulls me aside. Hey, Wes, come here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He opens up his laptop and he shows me his 401k. He shows me his bank account. And he shows me how much he brings in and how much goes towards bills. He says, this is what I put in our 401k every month. This is what I put towards our bills every month. And this is what we give. And in my mind, I'm like, why are you showing me all of this? Wesley, I want you to know how to be a good steward of your money. 10 months later, we come out of his home and we're debt free. Why? Because being diligent, minus student loans, of course, <laughs> being, <laughs> being, being diligent and being able to manage what God has given us. Why do I share all of that with you guys? Again, this morning is going to be extremely practical because the older men's responsibility is to pour into the younger men. And the responsibility for the older women are to pour into the younger women so that the younger women can know what true spiritual maturity and biblical womanhood looks like. The same for a man, how to love your wife, how to take care of your bride. Friends, this is biblical and the culture will try to push up against this. But it is Titus's mandate that, that he is to get the reins of this church and say, listen, this is what you must do in order to live well. This is important for the body to know is this is what you must do in order to live well. We must model what we want to see. And older men and women, you serve as those models. And may I also suggest that it also works in the flip side, that the older men and the, the younger men and the younger women, you too serve as a model. And I'll show you why. Let's keep trucking. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here, Paul addresses Titus specifically, short of calling his name out. He says, in all things, show yourself, meaning this is to be addressed to you as a leader, as the pastor of these people here in Crete. And what I find most interesting in this text is that Titus's directive is given directly after the younger men. Why do I say that? Well, understand that verse six we just talked about was talking about the younger men. So this is not to divorce the fact that Titus is not a younger man. This is to say that Titus, now that you are teaching soundly, that because you should teach soundly, don't neglect the fact that you are to live soundly. 
Don't think that just because you're the pastor, you're the preacher, that you can just say what you want to say and then go home and live the way you want to live. No, you too are grounded and bounded to this text. How many times as parents have we told our children, (laughs) do as I say and not as I do, only to find that we ourselves didn't even do what we told them to do. We can't be hypocritical. We can't be two-faced. We have to make sure that if I'm going to say do this, then I actually follow through and I do it. So Paul makes it clear in the text, Titus, you are to be an example, be an example, be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. We see the same usage of the word example in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul says to the church at Philippi, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The word example here in the Greek is an interesting word. It's where we get our English word symmetry. It means joint imitator. This is where we can get, this is where we are able to see that Paul is trying to connect the dots here, that that you are to live well. Why? Because you know who's paid the price for your life, that you've seen the life of Christ. You've seen him pattern his life. Now you, Titus, must live your life accordingly. Don't digress from the truth. Don't digress from sound teaching. We see Paul also mentioned this here in 1 Corinthians, verse 11, chapter 1. He says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Here's what I pray that you and I see this morning in the text. You as the discipler and an image bearer of Christ are not the object to imitate. I'm going to say it again. If you are discipling someone or pouring into someone, you are not the goal. You're not the one that they are to mimic themselves, pattern themselves after. You are simply pointing the one who is imitating you to the one in whom you are imitating, and that should be Christ. How Christ has lived, what he has taught, I live it, I trust it, I submit myself unto it. Friends, the moment that you make discipleship about you you and your following or how good you are, you miss the purpose of discipleship as a whole. Dare I say you've even missed the purpose of the gospel. If you're pointing people to be like you, you're pointing them to simply be a better sinner. I got more experience doing it. Teenagers, I will also say for you, that this applies as well. First Timothy chapter four, verse 12, Paul tells this young preacher, Timothy, he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, check this out, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, check it, here it is, show yourself an example of those who believe. Don't get caught up, teenagers, in this culture of YOLO. You only live once. 
This is a lie and a trick from the enemy himself. It is a lie that says live life to the fullest without any regret. And when you get older, you will have lived a good full life. Lie. May I suggest to you this morning that the only life that brings true fulfillment and joy is life in Christ. It's the only life that pursues and gives joy. Temporary pleasures are just that. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Check out verse 8 in the text. It will provide with us the answer to why we must live counterculturally. Be sound in speech, which is above, uh, beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing to say about us. Here's what Paul is saying. Your life's receipt through good living will be a testament to the transformation that has taken place in your life. Say it again. Your life's receipt through good living will be a testament to the transformation that has taken place in your life. Put it to you this way. Any Costco members? I'm a Costco member myself. When you go in, the first thing that you have to show them is your Costco membership. You walk in, you purchase whatever you want to purchase, your gummy bears, your trash cans, all that good stuff. When you get to the register, they check you out, they hand you the receipt. But before you can leave the store, you guys know where I'm going with this, what do they have to do? They stop you at the door, they ask for the receipt, and then they verify what is in your basket. And when I tell you they verify, if you've never met a good checker outer, they're, they're verifying. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay, okay. And they'll put that line right through the receipt. What, what, what am I saying? In the same way that the Costco checkout members are verifying what you've purchased, Paul is saying in the text, your life, well lived, will be able to show others and non-believers that the life that you live is a life that has been bought with the price. And that life that has been bought has been paid by Christ himself. The blood stained on your life. That's it. So when someone wants to come around and try to accuse you of anything, you've been justified by Christ. They look at that receipt and they may see some mess ups and they say, see some brokenness and they may see some invalidations. But guess what? There's a blood stain on that receipt. And that is Jesus Christ's blood that's been imputed upon your life that you are and have been justified. Paul then transitions to the last two verses. Verses 9 and 10. He says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Paul brings us to this last group. Again, I want to mention when we first started, this group is filled with many different people, varied from age ranges, different cultures and backgrounds. And here Paul is now addressing during this particular time, slaves. If you were here when I did the teaching on Philemon, we discussed the issue of slavery in the first century. 
We talked about the fact that slavery was a way of life then. So you can divorce this idea of American slavery from the text. Throw that out and put in there, understand that first century, there were more than one ways in which slavery was accomplished. One, either an individual was captured by a conquering nation because of war, or an individual owed a debt to someone and they wanted to pay it off. They had to work it off. So this is the idea of slavery within the first century. And Paul tells the slaves to be subject to their own masters, not in just some things, but in everything. There it is in verse nine. And he tells them, listen, to be well-pleasing. Be well-pleasing. That means satisfying the needs of your master, what they ask you do. Next thing he says is not being argumentative. Not contradicting what they request or what they ask of you. I think when I think about it, Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 comes to mind. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people. Lastly, not pilfering. Don't steal. In other words, don't reserve for yourself what you think you earn from your day's earnings. You get As my kids would say, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. (laughs) In the book of Philemon, Paul deals with Onesimus, who is a slave. Philemon's slave is in a similar predicament. And I want to paint a picture for you. Onesimus, who is the slave of Philemon, steals from Philemon. Onesimus, in fear of being killed, flees and leaves. But it's interesting that that Onesimus comes across a pretty interesting fellow by the name of Paul. And as Onesimus comes across him, as anybody knows who's read the Bible, Paul, when he preaches the gospel, people come to faith. And this happens too with Onesimus. And Paul does something very interesting in the text that to the typical reader, their minds would be blown. Because the repercussions of being a thief in that time, stealing from your master, led to death. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon. And he doesn't send any other person to send the letter to Philemon. No, 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 no. He takes it a whole step further. You want to see redemption at work? You want to see reconciliation happen? You send the person, your accuser, the person that hurt you, harmed you, did you wrong. You send that person with the letter. And so Paul sends him. And I can imagine in Paul's heart, he's a little worried. He's like, I know that he could be killed, but put an asterisk here. Philemon, you too came to salvation because I was preaching at a church that you were at too. So my hope in sending him back to you is that you don't kill him, but that you restore him. So he sends Onesimus back, Onesimus face to face with the one who stole from him, now seeks to be forgiven. Why do I mention that? If we're to be practical here, restoration in that time with slavery was a very tough thing. What was Paul banking his buck on? That because Philemon was sound in faith, 
that rather than doing what Philemon wanted to do, he would submit himself to the scriptures and by example in the text, restore him. He would restore him. Now, I want to bring this back into the 21st century, and I want to help us understand this. We no longer have slavery now, but we do have what is called employment. Everybody has a boss, and everybody works for somebody. And the question that I want you to think about is very simple. Are you an employee that consistently goes to work late? You're supposed to clock in at 8.30, but yeah, 9.30 is my home. So that's, 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 I'm feeling 9.30. That's what I'm going to do. That's not being a well-pleasing employee. Here's another one. Are you an employee that in the boardroom, you, you try to one-up your supervisor by throwing out your idea in order to try to get that promotion rather than letting your supervisor put the idea that he told you in a memo two days ago that he was going to put out there and that any other idea needs to be waited for and held off? Are you that guy that just kind of, yeah, I, I have one. Is that being, is that not being argumentative? Next one is, the last one is not pilfering and stealing. Are you that employee? Again, 8.30, you're supposed to clock in. 5.30, you clock out. But 9.30, you're feeling yourself. You wanted to kind of push the limits. But however, you didn't document the time. And then you were really feeling yourself and you wanted to leave early because, you know, you had to get to vacation. So you clocked out early, didn't submit your vacation time. Is that not stealing? Do you see how if you are a believer in the workplace, acting and responding in that way, is your life a testament to what Christ has done in your life in a way that is practical? Your life as a follower of Christ should be able to have the non-believer look at you and say, man, they truly do love this Jesus guy. Your lifestyle in Christ should be so centered on doing what is well with what has been given to you that no one can come across and say, this person's done wrong. If I were to put it plainly, if we never opened our mouths and only our lives could speak for us, would people be able to see Christ exemplified in and through your life? Not your words, just your life. First Timothy chapter six, verse one says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that, here it is, the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Do you see that? The last half of verse one. Why are we to live well and do well? 
because it brings glory to God when our lives reflect what we believe, no matter the conditions. Sound doctrine will always lead friends to right living. If there is anything we see in the text this morning, it is that no believer gets a get out of sanctification free card. Every believer in Jesus Christ, every father, every mother, every sister, every brother, every grandfather, every grandmother has a gospel obligation. It is to live well. We must live well to reflect the glorious work that has been done in us by the grace and the goodness of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit. If anyone were to hold up a receipt of your life, would they be able to see Christ's likeness? Or do they just see that same old person? And I believe Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best. He said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is transformative. That we cannot hear it and not be changed. As Pastor Steve would say that when you preach the word, good things happen. Let us not be liars. Let us live well because we know well. And because we know well, let us do well. You and you alone are worthy of the glory and honor and praise. May you transform our hearts. May you show us the areas in our lives that we aren't aligned with you and may you expose those areas. If we're not plugged into discipleship, God, will you help us get under some sound men and women who will be able to pour into us and be spiritually mature and walk with us in sync and step? We thank you, Lord, that you have not given us the gospel to do it in isolation, but you've given us the gospel to do it in community so that we may love one another, reprove one another in love, grow by your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.